Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist with recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share the recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. I'd like to welcome Jennifer and Delene from Queensland to the show. Hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. They're members of Alan and Family Groups, and they'll be sharing their journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and tell us how Alan has helped them cope with the effects of someone else's drinking on their life. In addition, they're both on the organising committee of Alan's participation in the upcoming AA National Convention, but we'll talk a bit about that later on. So, Jennifer, we usually start by talking about growing up and the things that influenced us and sort of where we came across alcoholism. So what was life like for you growing up? Well, uh, I was born during the war and it was, you know, the impact of the war was quite strong on my family. Um, My father decided to leave my mother when she had a bun in the oven, that was me and my little brother, and go to Papua New Guinea. So... He was training when I was born and mum came up to the Darling Downs here. I live on the Darling Downs and uh, had quite a difficult uh, time. He had to sell his business and and when he came back from the war, uh, he was really changed. His mental health wasn't so good and he and his mates would drink a lot. So I wouldn't call him an alcoholic because he never saw himself as an alcoholic, but his drinking certainly had an impact on our family and it increased over the years. For instance, I was a very quiet, sort of shy, very well-behaved young girl, always wanting to be the little helper, make everything in the family useful. My school life went between different schools and I left school at 15, really was interested in learning. So When I left home, two different educational advancement, I suppose, from doing my matriculation at night to a laboratory technology degree and then a science degree and off to Melbourne where I got a job with the CSIRO. This was in the 60s and it was really easy to get work and things that were exciting. So that was a good part of my life. I lived with journalists and there was a lot of drinking there as well. But I think my parents' drinking off drinking so uh, fortunately for me I didn't do drinking I think my first boyfriend had problems with alcoholism as well but it was later on that I met um who was to be my first husband and the father of my children that I got entangled with someone who was addicted to substances including alcohol and marijuana so it was the 60s and life was exciting I think it was heartbreaking for my parents to see um, my daughter going down this road but I did after the first child he became I suppose we, we could say the disease progressed in him and there was a lot of domestic violence so when I was pregnant with my second daughter who's now 45 46 I escaped from that situation. I've been reflecting on that. I think thanks to Al-Anon, I've been able to look at resilience that I've showed in my life. My life was really quite driven by fear through a lot of that situation. So, Delaine, what was your life like growing up? What was family and friends, school? I actually grew up not far from Toowoomba in, in Queensland on the Darling Downs, a place called Dolby. Dolby is, is very flat. You know, you can look out and you can see the whole horizon, 180 degrees of the horizon, some hills in the distance. But it was um, very fertile, black, sort of volcanic soil. 
And my father, as I was growing up, was a wheat farmer. But we didn't um, live on the farm. We lived in the town and we would just go out to, to the farm for us on a school holiday and weekends and stuff like that. My parents had actually um, met during the war. So I, I'm the product of the Second World War as well. My father was from Queensland, uh, but my mother was from Melbourne and he had been with the RAAF in their construction corps and they would um, airlift them to Melbourne every now and then for rest and recreation. But he was very affected by that experience of the war. But of course, he had no way to that wasn't recognised that they may have been suffering, you know, post-traumatic stress and so on. And it was only later in life that he would, you know, tell stories. So, so my parents, you know, they, they married after the war. And once again, this was a problematic in that um, my father was uh, the second eldest in his family. And the story was that he was to inherit the family farm because his dad actually... Um, he said his dad had an alcohol problem. So my father assumed that role of looking after the things on the farm for the mother and the younger kids. But while my father was away at war, his youngest brother asked the father, could he buy the family farm? And the, and the father said yes. And they didn't tell my father. And he was away at the war. So when he came back and um, and he told my mother this, you know, he was going to inherit the family farm. And then all of a sudden he found out actually he wasn't going to inherit the family farm. So that sort of strained the family relationship with my, in particular with my mother. And my mother was also problematical in that her, she told me her father's drinking was a problem to her as she was growing up. And in fact, she wanted to get away from, from him. He was a a red-headed sort of Irishman who was very rumbustious. She said he'd tip the table up when they're eating their dinner and their food would go everywhere. And my father was a quieter person, so she thought she was, you know, going to get away from all that turbulent situation with her family. So, yeah, so the seeds were there for generations of the disease to come. As you know, you know, talking about Irish and that, so, so I was brought up a Catholic. So it was a small Catholic school in this town that I went to. An interesting time through the 50s and the 60s. Travel wasn't so, so easy then either, you know. My mother, because she had come from Melbourne, people remember her as um, different from the country people in this small town. And they would say, you know, because my mum... She had a, um, a bit of um, Italian and, and French background. And so she loved clothes and colour and stuff like that. And so she, all of a sudden, you know, she realised that she, it was a big cultural gap to go from the city to the country. So it was very hard for her to adapt to country life. She used to say to us, look, you know, don't stay in the country. When you grow up, leave, go to the city. There's more opportunities in the city. So that was, I always had that sort of, I did have a sister who, who very much loved the farm life and she is now uh, living on a farm in Western Australia. Um, but for me, I took my mum's advice and I wanted to, um, to, to uh, in particular, I, I wanted to, to, to get some sort of career or education and to, to go and live in the city. So where did you go to? Uh, came to Brisbane to university for a year. It was such a shock going to university. This was like 1970 and there were still the Vietnam demonstrations um, happening then. I was from this country school that had six kids in it and all of a sudden I was at the University of Queensland and there were thousands of students. And um, it was very fascinating though, you know, I was studying history and English and there'd be these big uh, moratorium demonstrations for Vietnam and, um, the, you know, the crowds, the students would all mass and then they would walk from the university into the city. So I didn't actually go in the demonstrations, but I would go and watch the demonstrations. So after that year, I failed um, two subjects at uni because, you know, I, as a kid from a country school, I wasn't really prepared for the level of um, methodologies and so on that were being used at the university. 
And so I failed my history subjects. I went to Melbourne and I got a job in the Melbourne age. And the funny thing is that's where Jennifer and I make this connection because I was talking to one of the journalists at the Melbourne age. I was working in the library and he asked me where I was from and I said Dolby and he said, oh, a Queensland country girl. And he was from Queensland and he, he had a friend who was a Queensland country girl and Jennifer and I worked out later. That was Jennifer. So this is like 1971. <laughs> but we hadn't actually met, but we met somebody who knew us both. So how did you come in contact with the alcoholic? Well, it wasn't, uh, I was still, I think I must have been about 21 and I had come back to Brisbane after spending a year in Melbourne. I had thought, you know, I'd like to be a journalist and working at the age was very interesting. But I realised I needed to finish my degree to be taken seriously as a journalist and, and to get, you know, a sort of proper journalism stories and so on. So I came back to Brisbane. Um, I started work at the Courier Mail in their library and I was studying at the university part-time. So as a young person, you know, we'd go to parties and things like that. And, and where we lived was in, in a big old house um, and there were a number of units there. And I met this young man who was very charismatic and I thought, oh, my goodness, he's all the things I want to be. You know, he's, he's extroverted, um, he's musical, he's articulate, he's very intelligent. And so he, he would come around to the apartments, you know, and I'd see him at different parties and so on. So that's how, how we met. He was actually from New Zealand. He had uh, travelled a little bit. He'd travelled a little bit in Asia, so he'd, t- you know, tell stories about his travels and so on. All he really was looking for was a somebody who would um, help him settle down. But he said, you know, that was because he he hadn't found a good woman yet who he could settle down with. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I put up my hand, I'm a good woman, I can do it. Famous last words. Classic. Back to you, Jennifer. Leaving the family was difficult. So how did life progress? It wasn't that difficult. Got a VW that I learned to drive when I was going to the university um, in Queensland and packed it up with my sewing machine and some other stuff and drove off to Melbourne. It was quite freeing, really. I thought it was um, fantastic. As Del said, um, living with journalists was quite exciting. I lived in Parkville for a while. It was close to the city. I worked at CSIRO in Parkville in, in the research laboratory and it was pretty good. I was settled there, really. I thought I was even going to buy the house that we were living in, but then a mutual friend, the journalist, went off to America. It was a slightly destabilising. I moved out of the big house and into a unit. I started meditating as well as working as a scientist. I also started up a vegetarian restaurant, so I'm an initiator. The restaurant's still going in Melbourne, but it was next to Jimmy Watson's and I didn't drink in those days, but, you know, I was a vegetarian, meditated, child of the 60s. Then I decided to pack it all in and go and find myself in India. I left the CSIRO. I think I hitchhiked. I gave away my VW because I lived on a commune in the Dandenongs at the stage at Jembrook. and thought, I'll go and find my spiritual centre and go to India. I used to go along to a wonderful bookshop where I'd get all these wonderful theosophical-type books. So I was on a spiritual quest at an early age, held by John leaving the country. I came back to Brisbane to say goodbye to my parents and pack my bags. My friend Malcolm asked if I had any nice curtains or stuff, so we did a bit of decorating of his unit. And then when I went back to pick up my royal curtains by go. To India, I met Mr. Wright, um, who convinced me that he's, he searched the world for someone who had an interest in science and blah, blah, blah. And I fell for the flattery and then I was gone into that relationship. It has given me two children uh, through many adventures, but from the very early days, I think that was difficult and exciting, but I think there was quite a bit of discomfort with his 
behaviour. I went along with it until the domestic violence set in. We had one child and then when I was pregnant with the second one, the, the violence escalated, as I said before. So I packed my bags again and came home to my parents. I, I was living um, in Sydney at the time, renting a unit. He had, um, it was my daughter's second birthday the night before. He'd vomited out the window, a bottle of Jack Daniels. I thought he'd probably be able to be sleeping in in the morning. So I had um, put my two-year-old in the pram uh, and the other one in my belly and just went off with my handbag and asked the real estate agent if he'd ring my parents. They organised a plane ticket. Then a new life opened up again. So I did a, a dip ed and got into teaching for a while and then into all sorts of interesting career things, professional development for teachers and bringing out my children. I got into the best schools and I really loved work. did a master's in technology and education. That whole progressive way um, technology was being used with the ABC broadcasts and computers in science. So I was a consultant for a little while with the education department and as my children grew up there's the next generation of people affected by drinking you know my fit my 15 year old would be going out to nightclubs and I'd be chasing chasing after them but it was my eldest daughter's alcoholism that uh, brought me finally to Al-Anon when she'd been working in Sydney but disease brought her back to Brisbane and she knew she had a problem. She had a beautiful little boy who was about four when she came back to Brisbane. I used to have him under my wing most of the time. Psychiatrist said, my daughter's an alcoholic. This is going to be a long journey. And I thought, oh, I'll probably fix that. I've been through a few things. That shouldn't be too hard. He suggested I went to Al-Anon. There I went along with this little one under, under my arm here along to New Farm Park. And there were a group of people there. I didn't feel particularly comfortable. There I was. <laughs> okay. Awesome. We might take a short break there. CD. It's called Grace and it's by the Borderers. And the first one I'm going to play is Keep the Lights On.
Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook. COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your favourite station, 3CR, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, if you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Uh, today, I'm talking with Jennifer and Delene about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So, Delene... We finished with you talking about the fact that you met your alcoholic. So what happened next? Well, you know, it's, it's very uncanny. It's similar to Jennifer's story in a way. We did over, an overland trip from Australia to England. We had a friend who was teaching in Germany. So it was all the era of Jack Kerouac and hitting the road, you know, and um, breaking free, you know, from, from what's gone before and the age of Aquarius and everything was going to be new and different, you know, we were going to solve the problems of the world and so on. But we left Australia and we actually went to Portuguese Timor to start with. And my partner at the time, he had been to Timor before, so he knew all about, say, cockfighting and where to drink and all this sort of stuff. So he, you know, it was like one big party for him, you know. But it wasn't like a party that I really liked, you know, so I, I wasn't really into cockfighting or drinking or anything like that. So, and also I was actually feeling a little bit sick. I, I had like a kidney infection or something. So it wasn't a happy trip, the whole overland trip. Um, and in fact, by when we got to India, there was one instance where we were on this train and we didn't have very much money actually. And so we hadn't bought a ticket on the train. So anyway, the, um, the guard came along and, um, and my partner was, you know, like he had this confidence and if he couldn't win somebody over with an argument, he would just resort to violence. So we ended up on this riot on a train and somebody had pulled the cord on the train and people got off the train and were throwing stones into our carriage. <laughs> we could have been killed, you know, like it was just this. And all, you know, from this um, partner of mine not wanting to pay the fare and thinking that he, you know, uh, could insult the, the, the Indian people and, and refuse to pay the fare and not follow the rules and so on. So anyway, so we, we eventually got to Germany and then to England and things didn't really work out so well there either because then he proceeded to discover the Scottish bars in London. 
and they were really rough, you know, like they they were really mean fighters, you know. So they you'd be in a bar and this big fight had erupt, you know, and I'd be going, oh my god, you know, and um, you know they'd be all into it, and and he'd you know come home all beaten up and everything, you know, and then and then the police wanted him for he had actually broken somebody's arm or jaw or something like that. We decided that he would come back to Australia and get a job in um, Darwin. And then I would get a job in London and then he would let me know when he got to Australia and then I'd come back to Australia. So anyway, I didn't hear from him. He, he disappeared. He only had a ticket to Bali and it turns out he just decided to stay in Bali for about three months on his way back to Australia and wasn't in any hurry to get back to Australia and was having a good time in Bali. In the meantime in England, I found out I was pregnant. So I was writing to him in, um, in, to the post office in Darwin and not getting any replies. So I thought, well, I had got a job in London, so I was working there. But I thought, no, I'm best to go home to, to Australia. And um, so, so I thought, oh, well, I'll just go to Darwin and I'll, I'll find him in Darwin. <laughs> anyway, I got to Darwin. And, uh, and I went to the, the post restaurant in Darwin. There were all my letters in the post restaurant and um, he, he wasn't in Darwin and um, I was devastated. And I had to ring my mother um, in this you know, small country town and say, I'm back in Australia, I'm pregnant and I don't know where my partner is. Yeah. So I went back home and it was really interesting, like, it was like my mother was a changed person because she said to me, I don't want the neighbours knowing that you're pregnant and you're not married and you don't have a husband. And maybe you should get the baby adopted because he's, he's deserted you. He doesn't want the baby and so on. That was yeah, pretty devastating for me. It was like things were falling apart really quickly. Anyway, he eventually turned up a couple of months later. And it's like, you know, he sort of didn't, couldn't take responsibility for, for these sorts of things. But anyway, so, so he turned up and we decided that we're probably best to go to New Zealand where he was from and settle there. So after he'd been in Australia, he, he got a job for a while. We left and, and went to live in New Zealand. Uh, and in the meantime, my daughter was born. So she was a, a little baby. Okay. So when did his drinking become a problem to you? Okay, so it was a problem right, you know, from the start, actually. But, like, here I was sort of clinging on to this idea that he would change, you know, and that I could change him, that I didn't have any problems. He was the one with problems, so I could help him. So I excused a lot of stuff, you know, like um, the violence. It, because it wasn't directed at me at first. It was sort of like when he was drinking and so on. And... The way I was affected by, by coming in close contact with somebody with a drinking problem was that I, all of a sudden I thought I knew things that I never knew before. It was really weird. You know, like I thought I, I knew how I could help him. I knew what he could do. And then I started to think I knew what other people should do too. It was really like this big illusion for me. But, you know, it was just that, but things didn't actually turn out that way. Things always ended badly. Yeah, so I was always sort of trying to, to think, you know, what would be the solution? What will work now? And so things like going to New Zealand with him, I thought, well, that would be a solution. You know, we, we'll go back to where he came from. His family was there. And that might be a solution for his problem. And then so when we were in New Zealand, we and, um, and the problem started to become more obvious then, smoking quite a bit of dope and disappear for a couple of days. And he'd come back... So, you know, in the meantime, my, my daughter was growing and I also, we also had a son um, born a couple of years afterwards. You know, and I was, I was working too. I, um, I worked um, in a, a restaurant as a dishwasher. Um, so, and then later I worked um, in, in the library, the university library there. So I was always working, accumulating money to have this, you know, house. And, but he'd just disappear with the money and he'd come back once again, you know, completely disreputable, beaten up and whatever else. But he would ring his mum and say, uh, you know, I've lost the money. And she'd say, how much do you want? And she would just give him the money. It was, that was, you know, when things really started to get really rocky at that stage. 
So this happened over like um, probably like a, a four or five year period as we're building this house and so on. And then, you know, the second child was there and so on. By this time, he had um, a job as an auctioneer and he was a really good auctioneer. They had a, this great auction mark, you know. So we were getting this really lovely furniture for our house. We'd moved into the house. It still wasn't finished, but things weren't going well, you know. Like um, at that stage, he had a, a group of friends around him, people he'd grown up with, and, and some of them were, had, had um, alcohol and drug addictions. And he decided that um, or somehow or other he'd got on to taking some medication but he was using it as a drug sort of thing so anyway I thought if I maybe if I had that that would calm me down so I went to the doctor and I said to the doctor look I'm I need some of these this medication and the doctor asked tell me you know what you need it for and I said yeah I'm not coping you know with things that are happening you know with my husband and so on and he said you don't need um, medication you need a holiday (laughs) So I said to, to my partner then, you know, I need to go back to Australia for a holiday. And his work said to him, you know, we'll pay for, for Dell and the kids to go back for a holiday if you stay here with us because, you know, they relied on him as an auctioneer. And he said, no, I'm going. I'm going to get a good job in Australia and I'm going to earn good money and I'm, next I'm going to build a boat. And I was thinking, I don't want to go on a boat with him if it's going to be the same state as the house. So... That's, you know, things were getting pretty bad. Well, back to you then, Jennifer. So you had just come into Al-Anon. So what was it like coming into Al-Anon and hearing other people share stories about living with alcoholics? First meeting I went to Al-Anon, I didn't go back for several years because I was confused by the odd in the um, banners and everything and they were drinking soft drinks and I was a bit of a, a health Fanatic, which was trivial, I know. So I had to get really desperate before I came back to Al-Anon in Toowoomba. I found Al-Anon at the October rally. Um, there wasn't any Al-Anon there, but I'd found out from an AA member that there was AA there. So I went along to, to listen to the AA members first and I found that pretty interesting. But when I came to Al-Anon... I, I found it made me better to be in a place with people who were telling my story, who I, I could hear they had had similar problems to mine. So it was quite a relief. The dramas were still happening and I was still enmeshed in the dramas with my daughter's drinking and um, whether or not I should take children and then you know she got married and she was sober for a while or during her pregnancy but then it started again so people understood what I was going through and I got step one pretty quickly I thought oh what a relief I don't have to be responsible for everyone everyone else that was like a revelation to me I didn't know that I thought I was responsible to save the world as well as my children my family my parents so it was a great relief to be like oh this is this is home I took up the offer of alternate group rep when I was very uh, new to Al-Anon the person who was the group rep told me I was a control freak I said what I didn't even know that I'd always be there early. I was a little miss helping, uh, set up everything there, make sure all the books were out right and everything. The chairs were, you know, all organised, the coffee was on. So I learnt more about myself. I certainly wasn't laughing then like I am now. I am happy most of the time now. In fact, sometimes I go to meeting and newcomers and, and you know, I feel that I'm a little bit too happy. I cried most of the meetings because it was Poor me, this is terrible, terrible things are happening. My friends were all totally sick of hearing about the next dreadful episode where I was trying to bail out my daughter and rescue her and driving her kicking and screaming to a rehab. So it took a while for it all to sink in. I'm still learning. I still go to meetings sometimes and I still get that little bit of judgmental attitude disrupt my serenity and at least I'm aware of that now I love the fact 
now that even though I'm a rather fast moving animal, I can stop and think sometimes and think, oh, I don't need to do anything about that and do a lot more. In fact, I had a horror of a day yesterday in a way. It, it wasn't a horror day because I got lots done. But what was happening in my family was quite horrible um, with another generation going on where my grandson was being affected by violence from his father and my daughter had to rescue him. So I didn't have to do anything but be there. This is the difference between me now and me when I first came to Al-Anon. Anyone had a problem, I'd feel I had to be there. So I didn't get step one, powerless over alcohol. Wow, that was such a relief. Gradually, with sponsors uh, and working through the steps, I've got to understand myself a lot more. More so, stop apologising myself mo- for myself most of the time. I think my self-esteem has grown because like myself now and I can do useful things in Al-Anon. Yeah. So being the child of an alcoholic, the wife of an alcoholic and the parent of an alcoholic, which one is was the most challenging for you? Water. Why? Oh, my little baby. Are you never going to hear negative language? You're going to be, you know, I'm going to give you the best life, you know. You feel more responsible for you. I could leave my father. I left him. It didn't mean I didn't wasn't with him he, when he took it. I was with him when he took his last breath. Didn't feel worried about leaving him. But my daughter left home with a master's degree and a great career and a great job. Study disease brought her drinking wine in a gutter outside my place, having left a marriage, family, property, everything. You know, it's it's pretty horrific and sad. Very distressing. Yes, yes, it, it is. Every relationship with an alcoholic is distressing, but each person has their own one that brings them to their knees. <laughs> okay, we might take another short break there. It's a game by the Borderers, and this one is called There Is Hope. Hope. 
There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music matters. The hip sister hop show. The heavy session. The Planet X radio show. Satellite skies. Shindig. Sweet dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Jennifer and Dell, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So, Dell, how did you get into Al-Anon? What brought you to your knees? We came back from New Zealand, and it was that time when there was that um, split end song, Six Months in a Leaky Boat, <laughs> Happy Just to Be Afloat. That was sort of what I felt like, you know, I'd been on this leaky boat over there in New Zealand, so I sort of back in Australia and um, my partner got a job um, in my hometown once again as this time as a stock and station auctioneer and um, so I thought oh well that's good you know you can use that skill and uh, so anyway he'd only been working in the job for a couple of weeks and he went to the pub and got pulled over by the police he was driving had been drinking and driving so he lost the job and um by that stage, you know, I'd also been talking with my mum and she'd been doing, doing counselling um, as a lifeline uh, person. She'd go in at night and answer the phone at lifeline and she'd heard about Al-Anon. And she said to me, um, you know, maybe, you know, Al-Anon would be good for you to go to um, because, you know, it's like he's getting into all this trouble with his drinking. So I thought, okay, so we'll go back to New Zealand. It hasn't worked out here in Australia, obviously. You know, his job, you know, he, he, he lost it. 
But then we didn't even have enough money to go back to New Zealand, though. And he said to me, oh, well, I'll take the kids back to New Zealand. You can get a job in Australia, earn your own money, and then you can ask us, would we, would we agree for you to come back to New Zealand? So we separated. I took the kids, actually, and I went to a women's shelter. After that, I, I went to live with my father in Dalby, and I thought, well, what, I was going to go to Al-Anon when I got back to New Zealand, but I thought, well, I'll go to Al-Anon now that we've separated. And I went to Al-Anon in Dalby, which is not far from Toowoomba, which is my hometown. And that's where people said to me, well, look, this um, is a program for you. It's for living, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're separated from, from the alcoholic. Um, it'll, it'll help you with living. And I thought, well, that's right, you know, because I... I thought things would just come back to normal for me once we separated, but I, I still had all these problems. And um, and with the kids, you know, I was um, I was not being there for them all the time. You know, I'd go off in this world of worry, and I'd hear this little voice in the distance, and I'd realise it was one of the kids saying something to me, and I'd sort of bring me back to to the present moment because I was off, you know, projecting. And these were things I'd learned in Elmon what was happening to me with my behaviour. And, um, and I'd say to them, you know, what did you say? And by the time they had finished telling me that, I was off again in this projection and worry and stuff like that. So Al-Anon was, was um, at first I thought, oh, I don't have anything much in common with the people here. And, in fact, I was so suspicious and distrustful. The first meeting I went to, I noticed that all the women had white earrings on and I thought, oh, is this a, a secret society or something, you know? And, um, and, I, and I got that book, Lois Remembers, because I thought, oh, this will tell me the story, you know, of how this organisation came to be. And in it, I was very disappointed because in the book, um, Lois and Bill, you know, Bill recovers and, and Lois, you know, co-founds Al-Anon and they have this wonderful house, Stepping Stones, and it looked very similar to the house we had built in New Zealand. But I was thinking, that's not fair. They get to have a house. I get to lose a house, you know, because the house was in New Zealand and obviously I wasn't going back to New Zealand. Yeah, so I had a lot of sort of um, things to sort out having, you know, come out of this relationship and felt like a failure as if the relationship had failed. And so I ended up, like, moving from, from that country area, eventually uh, arriving in Brisbane and, and going to, to Al-Anon meetings in, in, the, in the larger city. And I'm like, it, it was a very slow recovery for me. So as the kids were growing up I would take them to the Al-Anon meetings with me they were like five and two when I first came to Al-Anon so they really attended um, Al-Anon meetings with me and and it was great you know it's like they absorbed the program you know without just by listening in and so on and that helped them I think understand the relationship with their parents because my ex-husband in particular became more violent after we separated and he sort of made it his mission to, to stalk me, to harass me, to sort of be violent towards me. So there were a series of court cases, restraining orders. And in the meantime, the, the law around domestic violence wasn't very strong. Um, so this is through the 80s. And it was really only in the 90s that it started to, to get a little bit more, um, have a little bit more effect uh, and, and have recourse, you know, for, for breaches of um, that. So, you know, there were many times um, that, um, you know, my husband would break into the house or, you know, accost me on the street and um, all this sort of stuff. So coping with that was, um, Al-Anon was a real help for me because people there, you know, were, were supportive of me. I, I could, especially when I would get upset about something, I would ring my sponsor and she'd say to me, now just breathe just take a deep breath and breathe, you know. And, and then, you know, you know, I would share with her what the situation was. And um, she had a very similar situation to mine, so I could really identify with her. And, and I didn't feel I was getting that support from my family because my father was quite supportive, but my mother felt, you know, I'd been an idiot for actually sort of taking up with this person and, you know, just get over it and, and get on with your life sort of thing. And um, she couldn't understand why I went to Al-Anon 
and because she said people are just talking about the past there you just, just got to leave that behind and get on get on with your life but having that concept of um if i you know didn't have you know, any understanding or love from my family i i had it from my higher power and from like my second family the Alanon family yeah it's a good feeling isn't it yeah yeah so it was um you know and that sort of sustained me but it also then my relationship with my family started to improve and in fact it got to the stage where um my mum actually started going going to Al-Anon um later on as well and she really loved it you know she said you know it's just the nicest program and the people are just the nicest people so she had turned around from saying to me, what are you going there for all the time? You know, you should get over it and blah, 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 to actually um, really, you know, enjoying the program and and, uh, and using the program as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Jennifer, I understand that you and Della are organising the Allen on participation in the AA convention. So do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Alanon and AA in Toowoomba have got on very well over the last decade or so. We do a lot of things together. And so we were excited to hear about their plans to hold the, the convention here in Toowoomba at the beautiful Darling Downs College. We were planning that to have people in the dormitories and, you know, people coming up to walk around and smell the flowers and do some outdoor activities in the bush with sheep shearing and horses and all that country style hospitality officially we were elected Bill was elected the chair and i'm the secretary of the planning committee in 2018 uh, covid came along and we had to make a decision in may aa made a decision pivot to a virtual convention and they put a lot of um, research from that time into working out how we could do it. They came up with one platform that they thought might be a good secure platform because we were looking for something where the th the strands of AA, Al-Anon and Alethine could be secure. We put a lot of work into that. And we've been working with them ever since with a very enthusiastic group of um Al-Anon members on the committee are those that were less enthusiastic about the um, virtual convention dropped off the committee. We've been meeting every fortnight until last week. We've started to meet weekly, plan something as close as we can to a, a convention where we can all get together, have a series of interesting meetings and workshops and um, we think we've got a pretty great program now with what we've planned. Well, I, I guess it'd probably be a good idea to tell people when it's on and how they can register. The convention is on from the 2nd to the 4th of October. It's here. It's happening. In Toowoomba, uh, around that time of year, um, Toowoomba has more trees than any other city in Australia. It's, it's a city of trees. It's up in the mountains, so it's very unusual for Queensland. It, most of, you know, well, Queensland has, you know, it ranges along the coast from semi-tropical um, to, full, you know, fully tropical. Um, out west, it can be dry and barren, but um, along the, the range, there's, um, there's some, you know, some really high, um, lovely, cool places, and um, Toowoomba, is where the, the governors in Brisbane used to go to for the summer to have their summer to get away from the humidity and heat of, of the tropics down down below on the coast. So um, it has a, a spring festival each year and there's flowers, um, all sorts of flowers and and um, and, and celebrates uh, the wonderful environment that it has actually. And um, so that was when the convention that was happening. So, you know, we were anticipating that people would come to Toowoomba for, for this uh, wonderful spring festival as well as um, as, as the, um, the convention. So, Jennifer, how can people find out a bit more about it? Is it online? Most certainly is. There's um, a website. The convention tag is aanatcon2020.com.au. So how much does it cost to attend? 
costs a hundred dollars for the registration, which makes a lot of people go, "What? You can go to a Zoom meeting for nothing?" But, um, there has been considerable cost to this, and other teens don't have to pay anything. We're looking for some other teens. We've only got two registered so far, and we've put so much work into making it wonderful program for the Alateens to get together. So if there are any Alateens out there, please come and register. You can now register through the platform. All Alateens have to be registered for the 27th of September because they have to go through an authentication process. And members, if you register, it's $100, but there is a hardship option. So if you're experienced, and we know that in Melbourne you have been uh, suffering a lot of hardships that we up here haven't been so affected by. Uh, there is a hardship option, so you can go and manually say, I need the hardship option and the donation of whatever you can afford. The most exciting thing is the program. So tell us a bit more about the program. What's happening? There are 12 meetings altogether. Opening will be a welcome to Toowoomba with some surprise people. We're trying to make it funny and also a bit of a production. Um, the second meeting, opening ceremony. But there's more. But wait, there's more. That's only the first night. <laughs> we have um, five meetings on the Saturday, which is the biggest day, starting with the family disease of alcoholism. And going on to young members, our future. And then the next one is no growth in the comfort zone. And then what's next, yeah? Running on around the world. And so that's, um, we'll have speakers from India, um, from South Africa, from New Zealand, uh, from the Solomon Islands and Germany. It's, it's just great to see, you know, the Worldwide Fellowship kicking in like that. The next one is um, Al-Anon for Men. After the um, Saturday Al-Anon meetings, we're going to have a birthday party, celebrate AA's 75th birthday in Australia. We're having a keynote, and Jennifer, maybe you can talk about that because this is your particular one, you know. Sunday morning, I think it's the big highlight of the day. Our keynote speaker, Marley F., will be talking about vision for Al-Anon. And then the lucky last meeting for the day is... Welcoming our friends. Uh, we're really pleased that Tim Costello, the former Executive Director of World Vision, has agreed to talk to us about the effects of alcohol on the family. Sounds like a pretty full program. Will be, and that's not all. It's all the on-demand stuff we're trying to upload now. Right. <laughs> Sounds like people will be pretty busy. So if people want to register, if they go to aanatcon2020.com.au, you'll find the link to, um, to register there. If anybody's interested in contacting Alan on Family Groups, you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or you can go online at alanon.org.au. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Jennifer and Dell for joining me today and sharing their Alan on Family Groups recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking with a member of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening and stay tuned now for Alternative. Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR Digital and Streaming and Podcasting online at 3cr.org.au.